Chapter Eighteen, Part One of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume Three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume Three, by Edward Gibbon. Chapter Twenty Eight: Destruction of Paganism, Part One. Final Destruction of Paganism. Introduction of the Worship of Saints and Relics Among the Christians The ruin of paganism in the age of Theodosius is perhaps the only example of the total extirpation of any ancient and popular superstition, and may therefore deserve to be considered as a singular event in the history of the human mind. The Christians, more especially the clergy, had impatiently supported the prudent delays of Constantine, and the equal toleration of the elder Valentinian, nor could they deem their conquest perfect or secure as long as their adversaries were permitted to exist. The influence which Ambrose and his brethren had acquired over the youth of Gratian and the piety of Theodosius was employed to infuse the maxims of persecution into the breasts of their imperial proselytes. Two specious principles of religious jurisprudence were established, from whence they deduced a direct and rigorous conclusion against the subjects of the empire, who still adhered to the ceremonies of their ancestors, that the magistrate is, in some measure, guilty of the crimes which he neglects to prohibit, or to punish, and that the idolatrous worship of fabulous deities and real demons is the most abominable crime against the supreme majesty of the Creator. The laws of Moses, and the examples of Jewish history, were hastily, perhaps erroneously, applied by the clergy, to the mild and universal reign of Christianity. The zeal of the emperors was excited to vindicate their own honor, and that of the deity, and the temples of the Roman world were subverted, about sixty years after the conversion of Constantine. From the age of Numa to the reign of Gratian, the Romans preserved the regular succession of the several colleges of the sacerdotal order. Fifteen pontiffs exercised their supreme jurisdiction over all things, and persons, that were consecrated to the service of the gods, and the various questions which perpetually arose in a loose and traditionary system were submitted to the judgment of their holy tribunal. Fifteen grave and learned augurs observed the face of the heavens, and prescribed the actions of heroes, according to the flight of birds. Fifteen keepers of the Sibylline books, their name of quindecembers was derived from their number, occasionally consulted the history of future, and, as it should seem, of contingent events. Six vestals devoted their virginity to the guard of the sacred fire, and of the unknown pledges of the duration of Rome, which no mortal had been suffered to behold with impunity. Seven epilos prepared the table of the gods, conducted the solemn procession, and regulated the ceremonies of the annual festival. The three flamens of Jupiter, of Mars, and of Chironus were considered as the peculiar ministers of the three most powerful deities, who watched over the fate of Rome and of the universe. The king of the sacrifices represented the person of Numa, and of his successors, in the religious functions, which could be performed only by royal hands. The confraternities of the Salians, the Lupercals, etc., practised such rites as might extort a smile of contempt from every reasonable man, with a lively confidence of recommending themselves to the favour of the immortal gods. The authority which the Roman priests had formerly obtained in the councils of the Republic was gradually abolished by the establishment of monarchy and the removal of the seat of empire. 
but the dignity of their sacred chamber was still protected by the laws, and manners of their country, and they still continued, more especially the College of Pontiffs, to exercise in the capital, and sometimes in the provinces, the rights of their ecclesiastical and civil jurisdiction. Their robes of purple, chariots of state, and sumptuous entertainments, attracted the admiration of the people, and they received, from the consecrated lands, and the public revenue, an ample stipend, which liberally supported the splendor of the priesthood, and all the expenses of the religious worship of the state. As the service of the altar was not incompatible with the command of armies, the Romans, after their consulships and triumphs, aspired to the place of pontiff, or of augur. The seats of Cicero and Pompey were filled, in the fourth century, by the most illustrious members of the Senate, and the dignity of their birth reflected additional splendor on their sacerdotal character. The fifteen priests, who composed the College of Pontiffs, enjoyed a more distinguished rank as the companions of their sovereign, and the Christian emperors condescended to accept the robe and ensigns, which were appropriated to the office of supreme pontiff. But when Gratian ascended the throne, more scrupulous or more enlightened, he sternly rejected those profane symbols, applied to the service of the state, or of the church, the revenues of the priests and vestals, abolished their honors and immunities, and dissolved the ancient fabric of Roman superstition, which was supported by the opinions and habits of eleven hundred years. Paganism was still the constitutional religion of the Senate. The hall, or temple, in which they assembled, was adorned by the statue and altar of victory, a majestic female standing on a globe, with flowing garments, expanded wings, and a crown of laurel in her outstretched hand. The senators were sworn on the altar of the goddess to observe the laws of the emperor and of the empire, and a solemn offering of wine and incense was the ordinary prelude of their public deliberations. The removal of this ancient monument was the only injury which Constantius had offered to the superstition of the Romans. The altar of victory was again restored by Julian, tolerated by Valentinian, and once more banished from the senate by the zeal of Gratian. But the emperor yet spared the statues of the gods which were exposed to the public veneration. Four hundred and twenty-four temples, or chapels, still remained to satisfy the devotion of the people, and in every quarter of Rome the delicacy of the Christians was offended by the fumes of idolatrous sacrifice. But the Christians formed the least numerous party in the Senate of Rome, and it was only by their absence that they could express their dissent from the legal, though profane, acts of a pagan majority. In that assembly the dying embers of freedom were, for a moment, revived, and inflamed by the breath of fanaticism. Four respectable deputations were successively voted to the imperial court, to represent the grievances of the priesthood and the senate, and to solicit the restoration of the altar of victory. The conduct of this important business was entrusted to the eloquent Symmachus, a wealthy and noble senator, who united the sacred characters of pontiff and augur, with the civil dignities of proconsul of Africa and prefect of the city. The breast of Symmachus was animated by the warmest zeal for the cause of expiring paganism, and his religious antagonists lamented the abuse of his genius, and the inefficacy of his moral virtues. The orator, whose petition is extant to the emperor Valentinian, was conscious of the difficulty and danger of the office which he had assumed. He cautiously avoids every topic which might appear to reflect on the religion of his sovereign, humbly declares that prayers and entreaties are his only arms, and artfully draws his arguments from the schools of rhetoric, rather than from those of philosophy. 
Symmachus endeavors to seduce the imagination of a young prince by displaying the attributes of the goddess of victory. He insinuates that the confiscation of the revenues, which were consecrated to the service of the gods, was a measure unworthy of his liberal and disinterested character, and he maintains that the Roman sacrifices would be deprived of their force and energy if they were no longer celebrated at the expense, as well as in the name, of the Republic. Even skepticism is made to supply an apology for superstition. The great and incomprehensible secret of the universe eludes the inquiry of man. Where reason cannot instruct, custom may be permitted to guide, and every nation seems to consult the dictates of prudence by a faithful attachment to those rights and opinions which have received the sanction of ages. If those ages have been crowned with glory and prosperity, if the devout people have frequently obtained the blessings which they have solicited at the altars of the gods, it must appear still more advisable to persist in the same salutary practice, and not to risk the unknown perils that may attend any rash innovations. The test of antiquity and success was applied with singular advantage to the religion of Numa, and Rome herself, the celestial genius that presided over the fates of the city, is introduced by the orator to plead her own cause before the tribunal of the emperors. Most excellent princes, says the venerable matron, fathers of your country, pity and respect my age, which has hitherto flowed in an uninterrupted course of piety. Since I do not repent, permit me to continue in the practice of my ancient rites. Since I am born free, allow me to enjoy my domestic institutions. This religion has reduced the world under my laws. These rites have repelled Hannibal from the city, and the Gauls from the capital. Were my gray hairs reserved for such intolerable disgrace? I am ignorant of the new system that I am required to adopt, but I am well assured that the correction of old age is always an ungrateful and ignominious office. The fears of the people supplied what the discretion of the order had suppressed, and the calamities which afflicted or threatened the declining empire were unanimously imputed by the pagans to the new religion of Christ and of Constantine. But the hopes of Symmachus were repeatedly baffled by the firm and dexterous opposition of the archbishop of Milan, who fortified the emperors against the fallacious eloquence of the advocate of Rome. In this controversy Ambrose condescends to speak the language of a philosopher, and to ask, with some contempt, why it should be thought necessary to introduce an imaginary and invisible power as the cause of those victories, which were sufficiently explained by the valor and discipline of the legions. He justly derides the absurd reverence for antiquity, which could only tend to discourage the improvements of art, and to replunge the human race into their original barbarism. From thence, gradually rising to a more lofty and theological tone, he pronounces that Christianity alone is the doctrine of truth and salvation, and that every mode of polytheism conducts its deluded votaries, through the paths of error, to the abyss of eternal perdition. Arguments like these, when they were suggested by a favorite bishop, had power to prevent the restoration of the altar of victory. But the same arguments fell, with much more energy and effect, from the mouth of a conqueror, and the gods of antiquity were dragged in triumph at the chariot-wheels of Theodosius. In a full meeting of the Senate, the Emperor proposed, according to the forms of the Republic, the important question, whether the worship of Jupiter or that of Christ should be the religion of the Romans. The liberty of suffrages, which he affected to follow, was destroyed by the hopes and fears that his presence inspired, 
and the arbitrary exile of Symmachus was a recent admonition, that it might be dangerous to oppose the wishes of the monarch. On a regular division of the Senate, Jupiter was condemned and degraded by the sense of a very large majority, and it is rather surprising that any members should be found bold enough to declare, by their speeches and votes, that they were still attached to the interests of an abdicated deity. The hasty conversion of the Senate must be attributed either to supernatural or to sordid motives, and many of these reluctant proselytes betrayed, on every favorable occasion, their secret disposition to throw aside the mask of odious dissimulation. But they were gradually fixed in the new religion, as the cause of the ancient became more hopeless. They yielded to the authority of the emperor, to the fashion of the times, and to the entreaties of their wives and children, who were instigated and governed by the clergy of Rome and the monks of the East. The edifying example of the Anician family was soon imitated by the rest of the nobility. The Bassi, the Paulini, the Gracchi, embraced the Christian religion, and the luminaries of the world, the venerable assembly of Catos, such are the high-flown expressions of Prudentius, were impatient to strip themselves of their pontifical garment, to cast the skin of the old serpent, to assume the snowy robes of baptismal innocence, and to humble the pride of the consular faces before the tombs of the martyrs. The citizens, who subsisted by their own industry, and the populace, who were supported by the public liberally, filled the churches of the Lateran and Vatican with an incessant throng of devout proselytes. The decrees of the Senate, which prescribed the worship of idols, were ratified by the general consent of the Romans, the splendor of the capital was defaced, and the solitary temples were abandoned to ruin and contempt. Rome submitted to the yoke of the gospel, and the vanquished provinces had not yet lost their reverence for the name and authority of Rome. End of chapter 28, part 1